Open your Bibles now to Psalm chapter 12. It's uh, certainly a great blessing to me uh, when I do uh, preach in the evening service, uh, covering another psalm, uh, the psalms, all of God's word is helpful to us and blesses us. The Psalms teach us uh, how to pray and how to sing and praise the Lord. And so it's always a blessing, I think, for us to be uh, in the Psalms uh, when, when we have opportunity. And so this evening we'll be in Psalm chapter 12, another Psalm of David. And here now, beloved congregation of Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. As far the reading of God's holy word, and you may be seated. <clears throat> psalm 12 is another psalm by David, as we've been going through here, looking at uh, all these uh, first psalms written by David. And in this psalm, King David feels all alone as the follower of God. And it's assumed to have been written by David at the time when Saul was persecuting him and seeking to put him to death, so he may not have been king just yet. But at that time, it seemed to David that everyone was against him. The Lord had chosen him to be the king of Israel, but Saul was still the king at that time, and it seemed as if there were none who were godly that remained. This psalm then is is a good psalm to pray when the church, the true church, seems very small. When it seems the world is only filled with wickedness, and the times seem perilous for the righteous who are few. Now, this psalm is constructed as a chiasm, which means that its ordering is A, B, C, and then C, B, A. And so the first section of the psalm corresponds with the last section. They're the A sections. The second section corresponds with the second to last section. These are the B sections. And the two middle sections correspond with each other, which would be... The C 
sections. And we will follow this pattern throughout the sermon. So rather than just going verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, we'll look at those corresponding sections with each other. And so looking at the A sections, which consist of the first verse and the last two verses of this hymn, we see that David begins and ends this psalm with a lament. We could say that this psalm is a psalm of lament, but that's not all that it is. At points, it's a prayer for deliverance. And at other points, it's a prayer of imprecation or an imprecatory prayer. Sometimes a psalm does not always just fit nicely and neatly into one genre, as we like to label them. But sometimes it includes elements from different genres within the psalm. And so in verse 1... David begins with a prayer of deliverance or a prayer for deliverance, and then he laments his situation. He says, Save, O Lord. And there's his prayer for deliverance. Save, deliver me from my enemies. Why? Why does he pray this? What's going on? Well, he says, For the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Now, the last two verses of this hymn correspond to this. You see, David begins by asking God for deliverance. And verse 7 corresponds to this with David noting that God will indeed deliver the righteous. He says, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Now, the Lord is faithful to deliver, but... At the time of the composition of this psalm, he hadn't saved them just yet. And so David closes the hymn by returning to that state of lamentation. On every side, he says, the wicked prowl as vile is exalted among the children of man. And so it begins and ends with the pitiful condition of the children of man. The faithful have vanished from the children of man, verse 1, and vileness is exalted among the children of man, verse 7. So there's the situation. There's what he's dealing with. Everyone seems against him. Certainly, King Saul, if that is indeed the time in which it's constructed, King Saul is against him. And many have sided with Saul. Many are against David, and he feels all alone. And so he laments. It's lamentation. And that's okay. That's a form of worship before God. To lament. The lament of the faithful. Not the lament of the faithless, but the lament of the faithful. Go to him in lamentation and cry out to him. Ask for deliverance. Ask for prayers of healing. Prayers of deliverance, whatever they may be. David definitely feels alone, like he is isolated, not from all people, of course, but like he alone is faithful in a world filled with the wicked. The godly one is gone, he says. The faithful have vanished. David is not the only one who has ever felt this way. The prophet Elijah felt that that, that very way when he ran into the desert for his life. Uh, we just did this, uh, Voss and I just did this in our 
devotions the other night talking about the prophet Elijah. Do you remember when all Israel seemed to have turned to worship Baal? There were 450 prophets of Baal in Israel, Israelites at that time. And Elijah was the last and only prophet left of Yahweh. And he was accused by the king of being a troubler of Israel. The one true prophet accused of being a troubler. And so Elijah called all of Israel together at Mount Carmel where both he and the prophets of Baal prepared sacrifices on the mountain. And Elijah said to the prophet Baal, You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And whoever answers by fire, consuming the sacrifice, he is the one who is God. And so the prophets of Baal called all throughout the day, But, of course, there was no answer. But then Elijah called upon the name of the Lord. And listen to what he says. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And after he spoke these things, immediately the fire of the Lord came down and consumed the sacrifice. Yet, after all of this, Elijah still had to flee for his life into the desert. And he laid down in a cave where the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And he said to the Lord, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah felt alone. He felt like the godly were gone, like the faithful had vanished. Very similar to David in this psalm. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe not that you were the very last Christian on earth. Even David was speaking here in Psalm 12 in hyperbole because down in verse 7, he begins speaking of the plural about how the Lord will help them. He will save us from this generation, he says. And so he knows there are others But he feels alone. Have you ever felt that way? You try to live by God's standards while everyone around you does what is right in their own eyes. You may feel this way in the world around you. At your job, maybe even in your own home at times. Wickedness just seems to prevail all around you. It may even feel like God has abandoned his people. His church, his covenant. In the New Testament, after Christ had come and died, rose again and ascended into heaven, some of the Jews uh, believed, believed on him. They turned to their Messiah. But those believing Jews sort of felt the same way. 
What has happened to our kinsmen? None believe. Most of them have rejected the Messiah. And so Paul reminds them of the prophet Elijah, who, like them, felt alone. But Paul reminds them in Romans 11 that God always keeps a remnant for himself. And he showed this by revealing, even to Elijah, that even back then he had kept for himself 7,000 who had not bent the knee to Baal. God always keeps a remnant for himself. Sometimes we may feel alone. We may feel like Elijah. We may feel like the Jews in Paul's day. We may feel like David. Everything's turned in on us. Who is there to help? Where are the godly ones? And when we feel this way, we must remember and cling to the promises of God. And that is indeed what Psalm 12 is teaching us. To remember the promises of God. His promises to deliver. His promises that he will always keep. Some for himself. That the church will always be. Let us continue to look at David's experience in the psalm, which is expressed in the B sections of this psalm, that is in verse 2, and its corresponding verse, verse 6, verses 2 and 6. And so in verse 2 he says, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. The word there for lie more specifically means emptiness. They lie or they speak empty words. Their words are false because they are empty or are devoid of what those words actually mean. In other words, they speak good words, but they are insincere words. They are merely words of flattery. Hence, these people speak with a double heart. And flattery is something done... When motives are impure. You see, these people, they wish to deceive in order to get something out of the person that they flatter. David seems to be experiencing this himself, but he sees it all around him as well. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, he says. And I don't mean to jump into the next section into dealing with those, those different sections in the C sections. But he further explains in verse 4 that these people say, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Now in the Psalms, if you read through the Psalms, the expression of the faithful is always that the Lord is with us. But these people say, Our tongue is with us. And so we see their own self-reliance. They use their speech to get the things they want. They think they can achieve whatever they want through their deceit and duplicity. 
What can stop them? Who is master over them? Their lips are with them. They are their own master. They can overcome all their neighbors. That is, anyone who stands in their way or whoever has what it is that they want. Their flattering tongues, their insincere words, their lying lips will get them what they want. Well, this corresponds with verse 6 by way of a contrast. The wicked lie and use deceitful words, but, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Now we've been learning about the symbolism of seven, haven't we? It symbolizes perfection. And so like silver that has been purified to perfection is the purity of the Lord's words. God's word has no contamination, no imperfections. It is perfect and can therefore be trusted. You see, David's trust in God's word is what he clings to. He takes comfort and leans upon the promises of God. Charles Spurgeon labeled the title of this psalm, Good Thoughts in Bad Times. And this is how we are to respond to those feelings of isolation that come when the wickedness of the children of man seems to prevail over the righteousness of the faithful. When it seems the kingdom of darkness seems more powerful than the kingdom of light. When the devil seems so present and the Lord seems so absent. In what age in redemptive history hasn't felt this way? Or hasn't experienced these things? I mean, the Lord himself told us that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Even more beloved, as we will find in our series in Revelation, it gets worse and worse at the end. Revelation 11 especially speaks of the church just prior to the return of Christ as if it's dead, seemingly dead. Now, of course, it will not be dead, but it will appear that way. It will seem that no one is left and that it is powerless over the forces of darkness who with their mouths will rejoice over what appears to be the defeat of God's people. This is what we find in Revelation 11. But God, beloved, is faithful and he will help his church to overcome. He will save and deliver And he will bring judgment upon the enemy. Now in verses 3 and 4, which is the first part of section C, that's exactly what David prays for. Namely, judgment upon the wicked. He prays a prayer of imprecation. That is, he calls for a curse to come upon the wicked. A curse, a judgment to come upon them. Verses 3 and 4 says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. 
Those who say with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Now there's an image for you. The wicked walking around without lips. Because the Lord has cut them off. Well that of course is not what David means. He's actually using a literary device known as a synecdoche. Which is simply when someone speaks of a part as representative of the whole. Their lips are merely a part of them as a whole. And so he's referring to their whole existence. He's asking for the wicked themselves to be cut off. And probably it's a reference to being cut off from the covenant. You see, sadly, the people he's referring to are part of the covenant people of God. Even amongst God's covenant people, it seems that wickedness prevails in the life of David. These people think that they are answerable to no one, but they will indeed answer at some point to their covenant Lord who holds them accountable to the terms of the covenant. David is asking these people to be cut off from the covenant and treated as the wicked nations who would indeed experience God's judgment. Now, earlier I mentioned that this is a good psalm for us to pray today. But how can we pray imprecations upon people when Christ told us to love our enemies, to evangelize them, and to seek their good? Because of these reasons, many claim that we should not pray or sing the imprecatory psalms today. Obviously, we disagree with that, which is why in the hymnal in front of you, there is at least one hymn for every psalm in the Psalter. But there is a disagreement over this, even in Reformed churches. I remember an issue of the New Horizons that, that was announcing, you know, all those years ago uh, the, 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 that we were doing the Trinity Psalter hymnal project that the OPC was working on with the URC. You have them now before you. Uh, but when they were still working on those, there was an issue where uh, there were articles on whether some were for or against having all these psalms in our hymnal. And in that issue of the New Horizons, one minister wrote an article claiming that we should not sing certain psalms, like the imprecatory psalms, because they are inappropriate for the present Christian age. Now the problem with such a claim, which was brought out in another one of the articles in that same issue, is that the New Testament itself is filled with imprecations. There is, of course, the imprecation from Paul in Galatians, where he says, let anyone be accursed who preaches a gospel contrary to his. That, that's an imprecation for a curse to come upon the one who preaches a different gospel. Also, that very Romans text that we read earlier as our scripture reading that I referred to earlier about Elijah. Romans chapter 11, where Paul reminds the church there 
of the remnant, even in Elijah's day. That passage has an imprecation in it. In Romans 11, Paul applies the imprecation from Psalm 69, another psalm of David. And he applies it to the unbelieving Jews in his day. And so Paul, quoting King David from Psalm 69, says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now that's an imprecation that Paul is applying to his own day. And even Jesus, our Lord, pronounced imprecations throughout his preaching ministry. Think of all those woe statements that Jesus makes so often throughout the Gospels. You see, woe, when he says woe, that is a pronouncement of judgment. It's like saying, cursed are you, woe to you, cursed are you. It's an imprecation. And Jesus often makes imprecatory statements to those who were in covenant with God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. On one occasion, he pronounced judgment upon whole cities because the Jews in those cities, by and large, rejected him. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than on you. Do you see the similarity between this and Psalm chapter 12? Just like David, Jesus is speaking to covenant people. And he's saying that they are going to be treated like the nations on the day of judgment and even worse. Since they rejected their very own covenant Lord and the revelation that he was giving them. They had more revelation and were yet rejecting the Lord. And so it would be worse for them on the day of judgment. You see, there are imprecations even in the New Testament. Now, someone might say, well, true... But the men who spoke these imprecations were speaking inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore inerrantly and infallibly, one of them being the Lord himself. And so that's different and doesn't quite apply to us. Now, there is a point that's being made here. Because we are not to call imprecations upon specific people the way that Jesus did or the way that David does in this psalm. They could do so for the reasons just mentioned. Reasons which simultaneously prohibit us from doing that very thing. But this does not mean that we cannot pray or sing imprecations. We can pray to God to bring his judgment upon the wicked. We tend to think that God is glorified only when he saves the elect. Certainly he is glorified in that. The angels rejoice in heaven from every every sinner who repents. But God is also glorified in the judgment of the wicked. God may choose to 
bring judgment upon a person or upon a group of people by putting them to death physically. Or, instead, he may choose to put to death the old man of sin in them and thus convert them. That would, those two cases would both be examples of answers to an, a prayer of imprecation. And so this means we can pray for judgment to come upon people in a general way, allowing God to bring his judgments to pass according to his own will. You see, beloved, we need to remember that these are Christian psalms. The Old Testament scriptures are Christian scriptures. These are our psalms and not just Christian psalms meant for the church in some future time period. But they are psalms meant for us right now. The reason people make claims against the singing of certain psalms is because in our evangelical culture today, we simply do not know the psalms and their place in the lives of Christians. We simply do not know the psalms. We do not know the very songbook of Jesus. And that is why both your ministers here, Grant, and I have tried to sing more and more psalms in our services. I love the other hymns. They're wonderful, both new and old. But we need to know the psalms better. The psalms speak not just of David's day or the psalmist's day, and not just of the future, But they speak of our times as well. They speak of every situation that we encounter in our lives today. The psalmists feel every emotion that we feel. And they are expressed in these prayers, these psalms that we sing and that we pray. Now certainly they speak also of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think about this as being fulfilled in the life of Christ, you have to recognize that Christ himself at times felt alone. John 1 tells us that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Even at the time of his crucifixion, his disciples, his followers fled. Some did not acknowledge him, denied him. Christ at times felt alone and was not received by and large by his own people. The scribes and the Pharisees were, of course, his biggest enemies, which is why he pronounced judgment upon them. And like those in our psalm that David speaks of, the scribes and the Pharisees would speak with very Empty words. They would place the scriptures on their lips, but fail to see that the scriptures spoke of Christ. They used man-made words, their own traditions, and even worse, the very law of God to accomplish their own impure motives. They were insincere and double-hearted, and with flattery and lies, they achieved the crucifixion of their own Messiah. 
But Jesus trusted in the promises of his Father. He sought deliverance from the Father. Not deliverance from death, but deliverance through death. And the Father heard his loud cries and saved him from out of death, raising him up from the grave. And someday all who pierced him, Revelation 1 tells us, all who pierced him, everyone who fails to repent of their sins and trust in him will be cursed to the fires of eternal damnation. Now David, as a type of Christ, experienced a similar deliverance. He prayed for judgment to come upon his enemies. And corresponding to that prayer is the Lord's answer in verse 5. He prays the prayer in verse 4. These are the middle sections. Verse 4, he prays the prayer for judgment. And in verse 5, the Lord responds to David's prayer. David records the Lord himself speaking in this verse. I mean, of course, all of Scripture is God's word. It's word to us. But he records the Lord speaking in the first person. In answer to his prayer, and the Lord responds to David's prayer saying, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. You see, beloved, judgment and deliverance are tied together. David prays for judgment. The Lord responds and answers by saying he will deliver. The judgment of the wicked is simultaneously the salvation of the righteous. The Lord brought David and the faithful victory over their enemies. And in this way, the Lord provided safety and deliverance for his people. And this ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. The judgment endured by Christ was for us the very thing that brought us safety. We were judged as guilty and our curse was laid upon him. And thus he alone is our safety. He is our deliverance. And someday when the Lord comes to bring final judgment, then too will we be delivered once for all from every vile and wicked thing. This very thing. God has promised. And his words are pure, like silver refined and purified seven times. And so let us trust, beloved, in God's promises. Though we may feel all alone, though our circumstances may seem bleak, though it may seem we are the last, let us trust. In God, that he has saved for himself a people. He will judge the wicked and he will bring us deliverance. Let us pray in accordance with God's will, just as David did in the psalm, and be comforted in the God who is our safety. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word, which is indeed pure. 
which is trustworthy. May we run to it. May we find our comfort in it. May we live by it. For the world may tell us one thing. Our very own feelings or emotions may tell us certain things even. But your word sets all that straight. And so may we trust in your word, trust in your promises. And know that you have indeed accomplished our deliverance in Christ. And will indeed bring it to consummation at his return. May we depend upon you in all things. Whatever circumstance we're dealing with, Lord. Whatever thing we may need to be delivered from in that moment. May we trust in you. And when you bring us deliverance, may we glorify you. Even if it's in our own death, Lord, you will indeed deliver us through it. And we will stand with you in heaven and give you praise and glory for it. And so may we trust in you in all things. And give us courage to speak the truth to others. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.